Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and we have an awesome show for you today. First, we're going to talk with Saul Kadir uh, from Galaxy Research about Reddit NFTs. Don't call them NFTs. They call them digital collectibles, but they've been popping off. We're also going to talk with Saul about his new report on NFT royalties. Um, and then Christine Kim is back from her travels, and she's going to talk with us about Ethereum censorship resistance, um, upcoming development stuff. And we're going to, of course, talk with our friend Bimnet Abibi about markets. Before we get to all that, please refer to the disclaimers and the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this podcast constitutes investment advice or recommendation, solicitation or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Got that disclaimer out of the way, so let's get to it. Last week, we ran a poll uh, for our audience on our Galaxy Research Twitter page following our discussion about Aptos's launch. And the question was, in two years, which of these blockchains will have the most move programming language activity? Aptos, Sui, Zero Libra, or Starcoin, or Ethereum and Solana? And the big winner was Ethereum and Solana with 63% of the respondents choosing those established blockchains. I guess the idea is that they might add, if Move is so good, add some way to do uh, coding on their blockchains with the Move programming language. The worst performer, Zero Libra, is the literal fork of Libra. Um, but Aptos also only came in at a, at a measly 13%. I suppose our um, audience is more bullish perhaps on Sui, which had 19%. So thank you, everyone, for contributing. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi to talk markets. Um, pretty wild couple days. Today's Wednesday, October uh, 26th. But... Big updates in crypto and, and 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 in other markets. I haven't been watching any of the other markets. Absolutely, um, so talk to us. So what you've had happen is just an unwind of basically the the past you know nine to ten months, uh, where you've seen you know stock markets rally, you've seen bond markets rally, and you've seen the dollar sell off. Uh, a lot of it is is largely a function of positioning that was historic, like by historic standards, incredibly stretched. Um, folks were very defensively positioned in, in equities. They were overweight cash. Um, in crypto, there were a lot of shorts. Um, yeah. you know, just to give you guys an idea, today alone, there in the past 24 hours, there have been $1.5 billion worth of crypto liquidations. Um, you know, same thing on, on the dollar. Um, you know, you've seen cable you know, rally from, you know, 105 at the dead lows to, to 115 now, um, and Euro dollars above parity. Um, a lot of that has been driven, you know, not only by the positioning, but also a perceived shift, um, by the fed. There was a Nick Timoros piece out last Friday, uh, that basically said the fed can't really keep going at 75 forever. We already knew that. Um, and that they're likely to, you know, communicate a, a shift to 50 or, or lower. Um, I'm getting a trading alert right now. So. <laughs> uh, apologies. You know, so, so, so the, the whole idea is that the fed just can't basically keep going at 75, 75, 75, as long as you know, the data is hot because one monetary policy works with a lag, right? It doesn't impact the market immediately. And two, um, there are a lot of sort of concerns regarding financial stability, you know, what incredible dollar strength does to the world. So all this piece highlighted was that 
you know, the Fed can't be as aggressive as they've been because that was the most aggressive they've ever been. Really, I mean, like, you know, 75 <laughs> basis points at a time is pretty huge. Um, so that catalyzed a, a short covering squeeze, and that's where we're at now. I'd also point out that you're entering a period of very strong seasonality in U.S. equities. October 9th is historically the the, the, the low of the year or the local bottom in, in S&P. Uh, you also have a lot of CTAs, which are commodity uh, trend-following accounts, um, that are forced buyers at, at these levels. Um, and, you know, general short positioning is, as well. So there's a lot of things that are contributing to this squeeze and this rally that, that we've had. Um, ultimately, I'm not really a believer in it. Um, and in the, I think rally. I, in the rally, I think it can extend a little bit, but I think it's giving you great opportunities to re-enter the trend that we've been in. And as a reminder, we're in that trend because inflation and inflation has not gone away. Oh man, it hasn't. I thought no. it might have. <laughs> no, the, the bull market of the middle of October, it will end soon. Yeah. You know, the cynic in me tells me that everything is going to be peachy till the election and then it's going to roll back over. Um, so that's two weeks, basically. Yes. Two weeks from, from Tuesday, yesterday. Exactly. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to dive into, like, you know, the the data set that, that's out in the world right now and sort of, you know, why I'm still, you know, very... Um, hawkish on, on the inflation side of things yeah like, i we've done that a lot of, i want to ask you a little bit more about crypto no, specifically absolutely. because i mean we saw i mean bitcoin's almost at twenty one thousand as we speak yeah. i mean eth is over 1500 which is absolutely. it hasn't been there in a while and um but i mean it was a whole bunch of it was it's funny right i mean bitcoin popping you know more weekly than 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 eth and then all of the other altcoins like running way hotter right i mean up yeah. 10 percent is not uncommon uh, high level uh, I, I genuinely think there are very few um, outperformers to ETH. Yeah. ETH was was the, the I mean, dominant. ETH, ETH's been up 20% over the last three days. Yes, exactly. That's a big move. There's only like a handful of alts that have outperformed ETH. Um, one, I think, again, short positioning was insane. I saw that. Open interest, of, yep. huge. And, and then, you know, dealers that, that are short gamma. I mean, how, if you think about the, the vol landscape we were in um, going into, you know, the past three days, I mean, realized vol was like low 30s on, on Bitcoin. And right. like, you know, pretty low on ETH as well. So you had all this vol compression and guys just trying to pay for theta bills that, that you know, ended up being short gamma. And so when you have a, a squeeze higher in spot, it leads to a vol up, spot up squeeze and like people not only have to buy back um the spot but they also have to buy back the vol that they're yeah. short spot up vol up baby yeah absolutely but also it's it's really like the first sort of uh period where you know i think the market has had enough time to digest the new tokenomics of, of ethereum this is you had all of the deleveraging post the merge so it's very clean from a um you know guys that wanted to sell have, have gotten out standpoint mm -hmm. but yeah i mean uh I think I think this stuff is broadly going to track the rest of the markets, right? If S and P goes up another two three percent, I think um, you know crypto continues to rally. Uh, I don't think you have another explosive move left in crypto in the next couple of weeks. Like I don't see ETH going to like eighteen hundred, mm -hmm. like it did during the merge, because there's really no narrative, right? The narrative was a small pivot in the in the Fed, which wasn't really <laughs> a pivot because everyone already knew that, right? So you had the vol up, spot up, squeeze, and I think you're on the tail end of that. Now, with respect to Bitcoin. I think that has further potential, right? Like one, it's it's underperformed ETH meaningfully um, in the sense that it's not up 
uh, you know, 20% three days. Yeah. It's more like, you know, 10, 12%. Yep. Um, and two, right. Like it fundamentally, I, I, the way I think about it is you've had all this bad news priced into to Bitcoin and, and ETH. Um, and it, it barely broke above 19 K like every right. time it did, it got bought. Yeah. Right. So there's clearly a floor in this price um, in, in, in for the price of Bitcoin. And I think you'll find that to be true, even if S&P sells off another five, 10 percent. Yeah. There is a natural bid for this stuff. Um, and ultimately, I think it's going to prove to be one of the best winners uh, once you markets start to recover. But in my idea, uh, the way I think about um, markets is, you know, there's a dis- distribution of possibilities. Right. The left tail for Bitcoin is in my head has, has shrunk a lot. And the right tail is, you know, I, I mean, I, obviously we're, we're big Bitcoin what, asymmetric upside. It's asymmetric yeah. upside. Yeah. But, you know, the like, you know, one of our former traders likes to think about it. It's it's a, it's a call option struck at zero that, you know, is worth twenty thousand dollars right now. And it could be worth, you know, one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in the future or c- could be worth you know, 10, mm-hmm. but the, the right tail is so much fatter than the left that it's, it's like one of the best risk reward trades out there in the market. And then the last thing I'll leave you with is that you are starting to see signs of, of pivots from other central banks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bank of England had to step in and ease their bond market. The BOC just went 50 today, even though there's over 75 priced into that, their market. Um, and so there, there's like little signs here and there and like Japan's intervening in their currency. Like there's lots of good macro stories that are constructive for Bitcoin right now. Right. And the price actions also in my head, you know, pretty good. The fact that it can't break below 19. Right. Bimnet, ABB, Galaxy Digital Trading, as always, my friend, thank you for joining us. Let's go now to Saul Kadir and Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Uh, we're going to talk about NFTs, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Ethereum after. But Christine, welcome back. You were on uh, in Bogota. And, yes, I was. And you were on vacation. Good to see you. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's nice to be in foggy, wet New York. <laughs> yeah, the weather was kind of a disappointment. I was in South Carolina, and the weather there is always sunny all the time. And then coming to New York, it's like, boo. Nice. Saul, how are you doing, man? Doing well. Uh, excited to get that report out. Yeah, we're going to talk about Saul's report on NFT royalties. But first, let's talk about Reddit NFTs. I guess don't call them NFTs. Reddit says digital collectible avatars, I think is what they're called. What is happening? Because I keep seeing people talk about how they're blowing up, that there's tons of activity, that even the value of some of them is going up a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, isn't this something that like happened months ago? I'm, I'm not really... What, what's triggering this excitement? Yeah, yeah. Well... Maybe it'll be helpful for me to go through the whole history here. Yeah, um, tell us. So this whole this all started actually in 2020 when Reddit had this thing where you could create your own avatar and customize it, and it's like a tool basically, and you could have different outfits and backgrounds and such. And this is just you know nothing to do with blockchain. This is just a tool to make your little icon more fun. Um, a few months ago during the summer, Reddit decided to start experimenting with this specific feature and augment it with blockchain technology. Which is, which is to say, like, instead of using the free templates and stuff to make your avatar, you can now buy an avatar that was commissioned by some artist and replace it with your customized one. And it would create a little hexagon, just like what Twitter does for PFPs, so everyone could see that you have a quote-unquote NFT, you have a collectible, you have something that can be transferred. Um, and initially, when they launched this in the summer, 
there was very cool demand, and no one was really buying these things. I think they only sold around right. forty thousand total. But and how many users does Reddit have? Uh, around three to four hundred million monthly actives. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I love Reddit, but I'm surprised. That seems like a lot. It, it's a lot, but con compared to something like Instagram, that's like two billion plus or TikTok. Okay, fair. It, it's definitely uh, more of a medium player. But the reason now to your to your question, why things have kind of exploded. Uh, Reddit is smart, and they saw that this project wasn't like exactly lighting the world on fire. So they thought, how do we get more engagement with our crypto initiatives? And they maybe they looked at history, right? Like we've seen this playbook happen before. Airdrop something to Vitalik, and then everyone talks about it. This is kind of like a similar strategy, honestly. They airdropped a bunch of these really low-tier NFTs, like the ones that aren't that valuable, to active members of the community. They did it to about 3 million people. Uh, and it's it's probably filtered on like karma, a number of posts, uh, how engaged the account is, things yep. like that. And then when the users in the app, they get a prompt saying that they got a free collectible. And it's through that process that they then create a vault is what Reddit calls it, their wallet. And then that is the metric that I think people are looking at is the number of Polygon vaults or wallets created on Reddit, which is now over 3 million. Ah, I see. So they... Airdrop to three million. That's how we got the activity on Polygon. So they're using Polygon for mm -hmm. these NFTs, by the way. Yes. Um, okay. Wow. And so then people see start seeing the blockchain metrics. They start. Yeah. Yeah. The crypto crowd in particular gets interested. Oh yeah, and and the way they, I think when something that's not talked about enough is the way they did issuance. It's very unlike any other PFP, and it's actually incredibly similar to Art Blocks, where. Reddit will just commission an artist, and that artist will do a collection of 100 to 1,000 uh, collectibles or NFTs. But they have dozens and dozens of these sub-collections, these artists, and they all get a royalty, which is 5% on secondaries, and they all have different artistic styles. And this is now where we get into like the price action. So one of them called Midas Touch is considered one of the grails. There's only 100 and like minted. They're like golden, sort of Reddit um, snooze, which is like the alien character. That's going for over like 12 grand. I think it's close to 20 grand now, the floor for that. Wow. And Saul, I remember back before and it, like the Reddit NFTs really blew up, you were really against the project, <laughs> saying that it wasn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And I think this kind of activity kind of disproves you. I mean, tell me, Actually, are you still bullish about, are, are you still a bearish about Reddit NFTs or has this strategy of airdropping um, to these pretty like influential figures in the crypto space, is it making you more bullish about the project? Yeah, so it's, it's funny, actually. Uh, I do remember being bearish when they first announced because they showed like probably some of the least attractive uh, iterations of these NFTs that like didn't even... The I think they're pretty cute. Well, I think... The chicken one was not. They the, didn't even have the, the alien. The old ones were... I mean, we, I think we put it in our newsletter. Yeah. They, they, weren't, they left a lot to be desired, I think. But you mean specifically the art. You didn't like the art. Yeah, I just didn't like the art. Um, and I think... So a lot of the initial points I made were correct in that it didn't light the world on fire. It wasn't organic demand, that's for sure. It was kind of like they hacked their way into relevance with the the airdrops. Um, let's let's also remember, and we talked about this in the gaming report, this strategy is actually very similar to like successful Web3 sort of NFT game initiatives where the base layer is completely off-chain, so that's the collectible, or sorry, that's the custom avatar piece. And only as you get more engaged users are you even introducing blockchain. So about 0.7% of Reddit's users have a wallet, for instance, and have a collectible. 
It's a very small percentage, which is very similar to what we've seen in the gaming industry, where anywhere from half a percent to 2% will actually spend money in the game. Um, so it's not surprising that we're seeing these, these metrics. Uh, I think their strategy does make sense, ultimately. So it's, it's working, we could say. Yeah. A lot of people are talking about it. Um, but right, 3 million wallets, that sounds like a lot. And then you're like, it's 1% of their, it's actually less than 1% of their community, right? Um, well, no, it's it's exactly 1%. So like, if they are going to, um, like, do, is that a success? I don't know, right? Uh, do you think they're going to expand this or will it expand on Reddit? Yeah. So actually, I was trying to buy one of these things, funny enough, like 10 minutes ago. They're all sold out. It's It's shockingly hard to even find your wallet. I had to like, look up on Google how to find my vault. It's buried in your custom avatar. You have to click on your stuff is what they call it. And your stuff is equals like your digital assets. Uh, one other, a couple other interesting points here is that they're also doing this thing called community points, which is on Arbitrum Novi. Right. That, that's also being held in your same vault. So it's like kind of a cross layer two chain wallet that contains Polygon NFTs and Arbitrum. Interesting. So that's, that's like reputation. Those ones? It's kind of like a governance type of uh, point system that you can use to sort of manage your communities. So like subreddits can be managed with these. Yeah. So it's like the subreddit is like a an off-chain DAO kind of now. And That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to like give power back to the community. Um, and the cool thing is these points sort of work across all of the subreddits. They can even be used outside of Reddit because it's just blockchain at the end of the day. That's pretty cool. Um, it's like is, a badge that you could show to get access and say that I am this moderator of a subreddit, which like previously was very limited to just the Reddit platform. Right. But now that For it's sure. on blockchain, it's something that you could verify yourself. Yeah. Um, one other question about this. Why is there so much controversy around whether or not these Reddit digital collectibles are actually considered NFTs. Like, why yeah. is there so much of like a, a controversy around using the term NFTs for this? Is it because of the in the way that they've integrated it with blockchain? Because it doesn't seem that um, novel from other NFT projects. No, no, it, it's kind of a unique thing with Reddit. I think when they originally thought of this idea, maybe a year ago, they would have used NFTs as a phrase, but they just found that people in the community hated NFTs. There's a lot of knee-jerk reaction for the climate reasons and for like all the grifting that happens in the space and the community just didn't want to be associated with that. So they found a strategy to sort of circumvent it by uh, changing like the lexicon used to talk about this stuff. So it's really like a marketing question, I guess. They, yeah. they thought it would be more palatable to introduce. Totally. It's interesting because they are NFTs. They 100% yeah. are non-fungible tokens on Matic, right? Yeah. Or Polygon. It kind of sounds like they're pandering now to the crypto audience more. Whereas before, if they were using a language to particularly circumvent NFTs, they're yeah. pandering to a more retail like audience that Interesting. isn't yeah. really non-crypto. So I, it sounds like they're kind of pivoting. Yeah, I don't love this doing this. I think it's confusing. Yeah. Um, your stuff. No, it's a wallet. Like <laughs> you should say like wallet or yeah. like digital wallet or something that is the same as what everyone else calls these. It, I yeah. think it adds confusion ultimately. I, I, I would bet that whatever the industry norm is in for these uh, for this lexicon and the terminology around things like the tokens, fungible or otherwise, and wallets, whatever wins out, and we know that tokens, wallets, NFTs is the standard language yes. today, they'll switch to that at some point. It's got to be a temporary thing. I, and this is kind of like the take I think people focus too much on. It's like, oh, look at Reddit. It's because they didn't use terms. That's why. I think that's kind of like a 
it's more of a coincidence in like how the Reddit user base just treats crypto. But the whole reason this industry is going to work is when people recognize that they're custodying like assets that are valuable and you kind of have to use the terms. It's not, you can't sort of force fit how other adoption curves for like the internet worked uh, with like TCP IP and things like that. People will be comfortable with some of the terminology, not all of it, but some like wallet, for instance, and NFTs. I think, yeah, people are definitely going to use those terms. All right, let's move on. Let's talk with Saul about his report that was released um, a week ago on NFT royalties. So I think it was called NFT royalties, the $1.8 billion question. Yes. So these are the royalties that creators or artists can collect on secondary sales of NFTs. Um, and Saul did great work along with Gabe Parker from our research team on calculating how much money has even been earned um, yep. in secondary royalties, royalties. Yeah, I guess second. I like saying secondary sales. Yeah, no, that's um, fair. I know it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's that lexicon thing again. Um, it's a lot. One point eight billion is a huge number, and oh, I yeah. think the reason though is the question, um, and not just congratulations, is because there's a huge movement afoot in the NFT community to, uh, uh, to in some cases, to remove royalties entirely. Yeah, um, and that's that. <laughs> That's a $1.8 billion market we've discovered. Yep. Tell us what you found. Um, I mean, maybe first let's dig into that $1.8 billion number a little bit. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been a very popular and heated topic, a polarizing topic in crypto Twitter and NFT Twitter, which is to say in the last sort of four months, let's call it, there's been platforms that have completely removed royalties from secondary sales. So creators don't get anything anytime an NFT changes hands. Um, and so that this has understandably created some frustration amongst creators uh, in the space who have benefited from this sort of mechanic that's endemic to NFTs. Um, and the thing is, like, yeah, like to Alex's point, companies have made tons of money on NFTs. Yuga Labs alone made $147 million on royalties. Artblocks, $82 million. Uh, and the list kind of goes on. Uh, even Sandbox, $26 million. And that's like before they even had a kind of a working product. They're still very early. They just had the NFTs. They had no metaverse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just plots of land. Um, they still don't really have the metaverse. <laughs> the other side is a project either. that's still being built. So they yeah. still just really have yeah. the NFTs. <laughs> it's still just Decentraland that is like the live crypto-enabled metaverse, right? Yeah. I think actually Sandbox might be close to a demo. Um, I almost like attempted to play it recently <laughs> <laughs> you almost attempted okay so um what about the brands too you had some good data oh, on brands yeah. those were interesting also um you know it's like the nike nike does nfts and yeah nike made 91 million uh adidas 4.7 million um how do you calculate these numbers is it all public information or did you have to talk to the companies no no this is all on chain so you just sort of see like the creator fee that was sent yeah um, where where did uh like t that's a great question w tell us a little bit more about how you found that data um and and what what you used so we used um it's a company called flipside flipside uh, crypto flipside crypto boston natives i know those guys <laughs> yeah they they created something very similar to dune and and i call it like the sequel on-chain sort of data providers uh they they did all the heavy lifting in terms of creating a table uh called ethereum core and it's the easy nft sales um like that's the table that we used. Um, and then we just aggregated all that data and so the and, and looked at the creator fee that was paid. And then we rolled it up into different collections. So we knew like uh, board apes and mutant apes, for instance, 
uh, and other side were Yuga Labs. So then we just summed all of those and created a line item and sort of did it for like all the other collections, Azuki, Art Blocks, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and that's how we came up with the number. And just anecdotally, like reading other reports, uh, we've, we found that this number was largely correct. I know someone else cited like 1.5 billion in the last year or so. That that kind of gut check makes sense with what we've looked at, which we calculated over all of the history of NFTs. So tell us too about, uh, you've talked about before on this podcast, but like you've got Magic Eden, the biggest NFT marketplace on Solana. Mm -hmm. um, they removed royalties and you've got some others on Ethereum, but of course OpenSea has the most market share yep. and they do enforce royalties. Um, and royalties can't be enforced on chain currently. No. So it's really on the marketplaces themselves. Tell, talk a little bit about that dynamic and, and what you're seeing. Yeah, so and that, that's the key challenge is that there's nothing about royalty enforcement that can have, that's on chain. It's a social norm that's enforced by exchanges well, to- Just actually, why is that? Why? Because this was touted as a thing that NFTs definitely enable, but really <laughs> it's actually just the marketplaces doing it on behalf of creators. Why can't it be done on chain? Yeah, I mean, in fairness, NFTs make it like extremely, extremely easy. Uh, the reason you can't do it at the smart contract levels, just because if we just break down crypto to its fundamental parts, like one of the most important things about having full custody over your own assets is being able to send it to whoever you want without knowing exactly who that person is, just being able to send an asset from one address to another. Like Even transfer. to yourself, like Even shuffle your own custody. Exactly. And that that primitive, uh, if you try to enforce royalties at the smart contract level, you have to either sacrifice what the idea of ownership is, so either shared ownership or like challenge the idea of being able to transfer an asset wherever you want, whenever right. you want. You'd pay a fee. Yeah. Just to shuffle it in your own custody. And there's no way to know exactly when you're transferring it to yourself or to an external party, again, without involving some sort of centralization right. um, or, or reducing the ability for developers. So to it's controversial to add something like that. And, and yes. Saul goes in depth in the report in explaining some of the ways it could be done. But those are controversial. So back to the marketplace dynamics mm -hmm. real quick. Um what are we seeing now? Because there's challengers to OpenSea that are removing um, royalties, and that's in many ways better for the user. It's cheaper. Right, right. And it's important to remember that royalties are, are paid by sellers, uh, not buyers. So buyers aren't even going to notice uh, when they're buying an NFT for the first time uh, if the seller or if the platform is enforcing it. Uh, the seller pays a royalty and the service fee. Now, in terms of like how we came to be and like the state of the challengers, it started with PseudoSwap in July. Uh, they have zero royalties and they operate like an AMM, like Uniswap, and they also have a very low platform fee. Uh, they started to gain market share just because of how much cheaper, you know, conceivably one could pay as much as 12.5% in royalties and fees. Wow. Whereas on PseudoSwap, you're always paying half a percent. It's a very big difference, especially for high volume or high floor price collections. Uh, and, and sort of what happened was Pseudoswap did this and X2Y2, which is more of a traditional marketplace, just decided to nuke royalties because they saw Pseudoswap was you know, doing well. Uh, and then on the Solana side, at the same time, Yaw was uh, nuked royalties and Hadeswap, which is like an AMM on Solana for NFT trading, also didn't do royalties. But on Solana, for some reason, and we imagine because there's more traders versus holders in that ecosystem, Magic Eden which historically has enjoyed 90% market share, fell to as low as like 60% on the heels of these challengers that didn't enforce royalties. And so then they decided not to enforce royalties anymore. Their market share jumped back up. 
But now we're left in this state where, at least on Solana, the vast majority of trading volume has no royalties. It kind of sounds like a dichotomy between like a buyer's market and a seller's market, because if these marketplaces are are pandering to users that are um, very much like just going to the platform that doesn't have any royalties, then there could be backlash from the creators that want to enforce royalties. And those creators could stop issuing or perhaps stop going to certain marketplaces. But because there's so much demand for the marketplaces that don't have any royalties, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of power in the hands of the creators. Right. But there's way more power in the hands of the people who are buying and selling, like the traders then, if right. the traders. Um, and I think that makes sense too, since a lot of these creators for NFTs, probably only like the top 2% of creators get like the most of the, the, the money and then right. like 80% of any NFT Which is true in the art world. I mean, not. if you yeah. think about it, think about how much art there is and most of those people, I mean, the term starving artists, <laughs> right, is the reason why that term exists. All right, close us up here, Saul. I mean, what do you see then for OpenSea? Because, I mean, that's the real question. Is the, because I, I, they're the biggest, um, is the Solana experience going to play out on Ethereum, do you think? Yeah, that that is the question. Um, it, it's hard to say. I think especially like the high floor price collections on Ethereum, it just attracts a different type of uh, buyer and seller um, that's not so mercenary and just trying to make a quick profit. But it does feel to me like this trend might be inevitable in some ways. Just in markets in general, we just tend trend towards lower fees. Um, perhaps a middle ground will sort of come out. Um, I think the way to enforce this is to get one buyers to sort of pay this premium rather than sellers. People that want to enter a collection are just going to be willing to spend that extra money. And tie some sort of off-chain utility to right. like those who pay royalty, whether it's access to the Discord or being able to play a game or things like that. I think some combination of those two will probably ensure that royalties stay on Ethereum in the long term. I, but in short, I don't think OpenSea is just going to turn off the switch tomorrow. Like that seems unlikely to me. Quick break here for our listeners. We have a poll posted to our Twitter profile on this topic. That's at GLXY Research on Twitter. It is pinned there. And the poll is, what will be OpenSea's share of Ethereum-based NFT trading volume in one year? Today, it's 80%. Will it be A, 80% or higher? B, 60 to 80%. C, 40 to 60%. Or D, less than 40%. Go on Twitter, make your voice heard. We'd love to hear from you and we'll share the results next week. Now back to the show. Up next, let's talk with Christine Kim about Ethereum. It's been, what, a month and a half since the merge now? I think that, which was what, mid-September, so it's late October. And um, it's, it's working. It definitely worked. Um, but I've been seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter. Um, everyone's showing that chart from mevwatch.info. Yep, that's um, right. Uh, which is showing that there's a significant amount of censorship now happening at the relay level. I mean, almost all relayers in the last 24 hours were doing OFAC compliant blocks, mm -hmm. as they say. Mm -hmm. um, and But there's other stuff going on too that we, we want to, I want to ask you what the state of development is now that, now that I think the developers have taken a little bit of a breather. Yep. What's up next? 
So now developers are going to be coming back from their hiatus. They're going to be having their first developer call in, I think, around five weeks tomorrow. We're recording this podcast on October 26th. Yes, on Wednesday, October 26th. On Thursday, by the time you hear this, they'll have had their first reunion. Yeah, and the the majority of, like, that agenda is going to be about planning for Shanghai, which is the next big upgrade. What's going to go into Shanghai? And honestly, I don't think that... Um, any consequential decisions are going to be made. I think there's going to be a lot of summary and recapping of what developers were really thinking about over the hiatus, sharing thoughts. And it's really over the next couple of weeks that developers will start to ramp up in terms of the planning. Um, And I think a big topic of discussion and a big concern on top of um, you know, staked ETH withdrawals, which people have already talked at length about for, for Shanghai, um, and EIP 4844, which is, you know, the scalability upgrades that people are starting to think about. Now, I think people are really starting to think maybe we should prioritize something for censorship resistance on Ethereum because of, um, all of this, um, because of basically how many blocks are, are OFAC compliant blocks on Ethereum now. Last week, it hit the milestone of 51%. And this week, I checked again on that website that you mentioned, and it's actually around 63%. Um, and I, I really think that that increase in numbers is... Um, it, it's really reflective of MEV boost adoption. So the adoption of earning MEV through third-party relays and block builders... Um, and it shouldn't really be thought of as like adoption of censorship, like adoption of censoring practices. It so happens that the most trusted relay, the relay with the best track record and performance, is built by an organization um, that is regulatorily compliant. Or, or that, with the U.S. regulation. Yeah. U.S. And, law. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that's Flashbots, right? It's Flashbots. And it doesn't preclude, you know, other relays from competing in this game. And Flashbots has said repeatedly that they're going to try and bootstrap other relays by sending profitable blocks um, to other relays. Um, and there's quite a lot of discussion that I heard from from DevCon, the conference, uh, the developer conference that happened a couple weeks ago in Colombia, um, about how there are, you know, different EIPs like partial block auctions that could be potentially um experimented with. Um, Flashbots, I talked about a private mempool, the Suave project, but these are all very research heavy initiatives that I don't think is going to be ready anytime soon. Um, so honestly, my takeaway is that as as validators and as block builders want to earn MEV, as there's profit on the table to be made for maximal extractable value. Um, the only way to, to really make it profitably is by uh, using products that are are censoring transactions, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So you don't think we're going to get like a very? I mean, isn't that a huge opportunity for a, a, another third party? And there are other relays, of course, to come in from offshore and and offer and do a really good job. Or is it just that hard to run a really profitable relay? Or we just don't know. It's so early. It's so early. I think that it it's seems a like month a huge and a half. Opportunity. Yeah, I think it's a month and a half, and I think people have tried it. We've seen other relays like Manifold and Bloxroute try to build a relay that is competitive against the Flashbots relay, and we've seen pitfalls. We've seen these relays 
stop working and reject and basically stop producing blocks. So it's going to take time because Flashbots has been at this game. They've designed the game. They're the best at the game. And for other, you know, competitors to start to learn this new dynamic, it's going to take time. Um, so when I say it's not going to change anytime soon, I don't think that it's because um, there's some kind of inherent block to, to learning how to do this. I think it's just, it, it's like a skill, a new skill that, that needs to that th there needs to be better education around and better resources dedicated to. I'm I'm honestly really surprised that there hasn't been huge backlash to Flashbots. In fact, they seem to still be held in high regard by the community. But they did design this game, and they're the main party profiting from it, and they're the ones who built the software that everyone is using. So I mean, they built MEV Boost, and they are trying to move. They say. And they didn't build it, by the way, in a way that only they can use it. Right. So they, 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 they've, they've, there's some clear openness in this organization, right? So it's not, they're not they're like not profiting off of these products. Okay, that's fair. Well, they profit off the relay, though, right? No. No. The relay doesn't have a fee, I believe. Does other do, do other others? relays? I yes. So it's so interesting, though. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah, that's gaining market share. It's almost like to what end, though? It's purely like a, a service they're providing then? Well, Flashbots is first and foremost a research and development organization trying to mitigate the negative externalities right. of MEV. And the reason why they've designed the game in this way is because this was the path towards the most amount of competition. How do you make sure that validators are not the block builders, the specialized block builders? Right. You need to off offload that to a third party. And how do you open source the third party? You open source the software to be the relay, to be yeah. the block builder, so they gave the which tools. Flashbots did. Yeah. And now it's time for the community to take hold of those tools and build really good MED right. tools. And it's just hard so, to do. And so Flashbots is trying to share that knowledge, but in fairness, they've also kind of been a brain drain and that all of the best they kind all of went MAB, to right, went to Flashbots. But now I think Flashbots is really trying to decentralize that knowledge and become more open source, especially with the development they're doing with Suave. I think they're trying right. to take a different approach. I've said multiple times that the way that MEV Boost was rolled out was um, far too closed. Um, in that development process. And I think for any new products, um, it should start from being open source development from day one and bring together many different communities, um, which I think is a learning from how MEV Boost was rolled out. Do you think they succeed in actually like decentralizing over time? Like, is it, it seems like a good gesture to launch Suave and to have like the desire to not sort of aggregate all of that power at like the client level, but like, do you think this will work? Like, what? How do you think this shakes out in the next next two, three years? It's a hard question. <laughs> I think I think that the the intent, like the the um, idea that like Flashbots wants to decentralize, is genuine. I think that their um, pursuits are are real. Unfortunately, I think the lack of specificity about where they draw the line is hurting the community. So if the relay of Flashbots is censoring more than 75% of, uh, producing 75% of OFAC compliant blocks, then we will shut down the Flashbots relay. Like these core numbers to hold Flashbots accountable 
do not exist. Yeah. And multiple questions to the Flashbots organization. How how do you intend to make a profit? You're VC backed. What is the the revenue model of Flashbots? Multiple time these questions have been kind of skirted around. Um, and for good reason in that they themselves haven't figured it out <laughs> quite yet. Classic uh, early but stage. But I company. think there needs to be um, there needs to be some specificity around how to keep flashbots accountable, even though their desire to want to be held accountable, I think is genuine. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me actually, of, it's not a very, it's not a, it's super similar, but there's similarities with what's happened on Solana, like the latest outage, it, everyone's running the same software on the validator side. And so now Jump had an incentive to like create their own version of the software that's only now just being rolled out. And so hopefully it would reduce like the instance of bugs that are specific to one version of the software being run. Uh, but the reason why that works is because Jump makes tons of money. They have lots of money. They could just throw this money at this problem and have this sort of instantiate. Uh, whereas I'm not sure there's tons of organizations on the Ethereum side that might be as willing to just bootstrap initiatives like like a flashbots from scratch and just to be clear like it's not that um the reason that it's a problem ofac compliant blocks right it's we can debate about ofac and right this is the office of foreign asset control in the u.s treasury department that sanctions foreign entities for u.s foreign policy reasons primarily um and and so some of the entities we're talking about that are that whose transactions are not being included in these blocks is say tornado cash transactions or North Korean hackers and, and these people that are on the list. And we wrote a lot about that in a report in August um, about OFAC's history of applying these sanctions. We can debate like whether specific sanctions should exist, but the issue is that every country on earth has things like this, these jurisdictional um, uh, impositions on businesses about who they can and can't deal with. And the goal of the Ethereum project is, and and I think definitely should be, to sort of be supranational in that sense, right? And so, no one, I I don't think anyone is saying that if your application you 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 run it, or if it's run by a DAO, if you want to say certain types of transactions can't happen, that's okay. But at the base layer, right? Think of the internet. We talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe at this point a couple months ago, like. Sure, there's the quote-unquote great Chinese firewall, right? And they regulate the internet there, the Iranians. And, and frankly, we've done it. We've taken down websites. The U.S. government takes them down. Um, that, But the actual technology layer of the internet doesn't have any of that, right? You could argue maybe DNS has, is a pretty big attack vector, right? But So that that's the issue. It's not that, like, I'm not saying we're opposed to OFAC. I'm saying the uh, entities should be the ones that are OFAC compliant, not, you know, apolitical smart contract protocols and at, the, at their core. And I think that's what people are so worried about is that at the base layer, this thing that's supposed to be this neutral party, and, and it's again, it's because every country has different rules. So like what so right now specifically 60 plus percent of blocks are compliant specifically with US law. But let's be real, like who Russia doesn't want to transact is very different than who the US doesn't want to transact. So it's a very slippery slope um, if you do this. I mean, it's not really the protocol level of Ethereum that's censoring, though. It is the Flashbots organization, like their product specifically. And so long as there is constantly an alternative way for people to interact permissionlessly with Ethereum, in that sense, Ethereum is technically permissionless. So for Bitcoin, there are 
certain wallets that you can use to custody your assets in a KYC AML compliant manner for taxes, whatever reasons. But there's also ways in which people can interact with the Bitcoin protocol in a way that's anonymous or pseudonymous. Yeah. And in, on Ethereum, that's true. But the, the fact is that most people interacting on Ethereum, frankly, don't care whether or not they're using MetaMask or like a, a, a more decentralized protocol for their custody. And the majority of people that are using Ethereum and wanting to earn money through MEV clearly trust more in the Flashbots relay than other relays. That's a good point. Um, and so I think it's, it's really about what does the community want and do they have the choice between a censoring product versus a non-censoring product? And that choice is there. This and is why you're talking chosen. about their, those levels though. The choices exist, but if... You know, yeah. eventually, if 90% of all blocks are flashbots, then it's like, you know, there's still 10. It's sort of like at what point, you know, but also, you, at you, what point would you be okay with it if only 1% of blocks are getting through that aren't censored? But like, are you okay with enforcing users to use non compliant software? Like, isn't that also in and no, of no, itself? No, I completely agree. It, it, you should have the options, right? And that, and I know that that's what they're striving for, but I guess the fear is, like pragmatically speaking, the vast majority of, well, right now the majority, but if it became the vast majority or let's say all blocks were running through a censorship um, relay, then realistically at the user level, it, it may as well be the protocol that's doing it. Right? Yeah. And so like that's what you're fighting against. My question is, how does a use, how does an end user get away from? Prasim was rolling her eyes at me on that last one, yeah, by the way, yeah. the, for the podcast. Listeners. We don't Sorry, have go, any video go right ahead, now. Saul. <laughs> go ahead, Saul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just my question is, how does an end user? get away from using flashbots on Ethereum? How would they do? How would they execute that vision? Well, an end user doesn't okay. use That's flashbots, my point, really. is that they don't really have a choice. It's like kind of tying Alex's earlier point. Uh, let's just look at like sports streaming. There's this huge issue of websites randomly supporting illegal streams of sporting events. And so Google has an obligation as a big company to take these down. And so if you try to search for it on Google, you'll just see a bunch of broken links. And with like the, forget the entity, it's like the DMCA or something like that, uh, has taken this down due to like copyright infringement. But if I as a user go to DuckDuckGo, which is, I guess, more credibly decentralized, I can find all those links. And mm -hmm. so me as the end user, I have some power over that. But if if I can't even decide like which at the application level, which uh, software the validators are running, whether it's Flashbots or another uh, client, then I don't really have any power over that. And so it is effectively- You'd have to like download Geth basically and run that. Not really. I mean, as a user, if I went and I transacted on Tornado Cash, then an independent validator who's not trying to earn MEV, they're just looking at transactions in the mempool and making a block. Eventually, that validator is going to be selected to propose a block. Right. And the the transactions in the mempool, which is uncensored, will probably include the, the tornado cash and uh, transaction if you've paid the base fee and a sure. lucrative priority fee. It'll take a while because yeah. most of the blocks that are being um, proposed by validators are probably validators that are connecting to a relay because they want additional profits. But one of the, the key 
uh, realities is that there are independent validators for this reason. Like yeah. people who just intrinsic, who just altruistically want to make Ethereum a permissionless protocol that they are willing to leave profits on the table. And so I think it really comes down to like social cultural norms. Like does the Ethereum community care about this enough to leave profit on the table and run independent validators? And if it is that 100% of validators don't frankly care, then I think Ethereum should be a permissioned blockchain, which would suck and it would hurt me. It would, it would be the most like saddest thing ever, but I don't think that's the case. I think in Dev, at DevCon, I've heard repeatedly from developers that this is a value they're not willing to, um, not willing to, to really compromise on. And so hence, this is something from a social level that they will enforce and yeah. they will continue to fight for this. And I think we've seen time and time again with um, client diversity, um, with certain MEV strategies that are profitable, but very harmful to the chain that people just don't engage in, that the social norms of Ethereum can be very powerful. And those are usually the ones that need to be relied on at the end of the day for a complex blockchain. We asked and you answered uh, for our listeners to send us questions for us to talk about. And one awesome listener of ours, Ollie, um, sent in a great uh, question, which uh, I'll play now and then we'll, and then we'll have the, the group answer it. Hi, Alex, Christine, Bimnet, and the wider Galaxy Digital team. My name's Ollie, and I'm an avid listener of the Galaxy Brains pod. I work in the industry and I'm genuinely passionate about it. And it's clear that you are too. So my question is, can you share the first time you had that, I love this moment? Was there a specific project that enticed you in or a disruptive impact that blockchain promised and it just swept you up? Thanks for sharing your knowledge. The content you produce is excellent and you've definitely got the best intro music out there. All right, great question from Ollie. Thank you, by the way, uh, on complimenting our intro music. That's my favorite part of this podcast. I'm just kidding, but I lo do love that music. Um, so I'm going to put it to you. I mean, the question is pretty straightforward. What was the first thing that really got you interested in, in crypto and, and in blockchain? Um, Christine, what's your answer? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you so much, Ollie, for sending us that uh, wonderful audio clip. Uh, we want to hear more from our listeners, so people please do uh, send those in. I think for me, I had studied Bitcoin when I was studying economics at the University of British Columbia. Um, and studying Bitcoin and crypto just from purely an economics lens, I didn't really fall in love with it. It was interesting and it was new, but that wasn't really when I, I really like started my crypto journey. I would say it was after I graduated from my uh, from university and I started my internship at Coindesk in 2018. Um, and I noticed that crypto is actually so much more than just like the study of tokenomics. It's um, it incorporates like the study of politics and like sociology and it brings together um, so many different disciplines and crypto um it it touches on so many different aspects of like human society and this is something that i i realized more with ethereum because ethereum was a general purpose blockchain you could do so much more on ethereum than you could on bitcoin um so i would say like my first what really got me into crypto was during that internship learning about ethereum and learning about how crypto goes way beyond just monetary policy and and revamping finance but like revamping just society in general and 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 touching on all different aspects of technology um that i think that's when i really started digging d deep into crypto and that was probably what got me interested in this space awesome 
Um, Saul Kadir, the Jay Powell of JPEGs. Uh, what was <laughs> nice. your origin story? Yeah, let me split this into two parts. Um, so I'll briefly just go over how I discovered the space. I was in college, it's 2013. My my boy hit me up and was like, so we were trying to always buy stocks and stuff. I was in the stock club at Cornell. Uh, he's like, hey, uh, let's buy Bitcoin. It's at $15. And I, I just look at the text. I do no research. I just, just because like I know his reputation, I thought he was an idiot. It's like, no. <laughs> and I went to class. And then four months later, I needed a topic for a research paper. And I kind of remembered he mentioned Bitcoin and some of my smarter friends uh, also were just you know, talking about it. Um, I did some research. I read the Satoshi white paper. And then I, it was very obvious to me that this is like game changing tech. And I pitched it to my professor. Uh, she thought it was a Ponzi scheme and she was an esteemed you know, behavioral economics professor <laughs> for like decades, tenured and everything. Uh, but she saw how passionate I was about it. It's like, you know what? Just research it anyways, even though I think this is terrible. <laughs> Uh, and so that's kind of that story. I kind of I kept researching it and uh, fell in love with the the tech and thought it was very obvious it would change the world. But to Ali's question, when did I actually fall in love with the industry? This happened when I was in a job search to enter the industry full time in 2018. I was at Consensus uh, in uh, Midtown, New York, and it was when Jimmy Song and Joe Lubin were on stage debating like the merits of Bitcoin versus ETH, and they were kind of just like going at it. It was, very, it was not polished at all. It was very rough around the edges, and they made that famous bet, and people were just laughing. And so that's when I knew I really wanted to work in a space. Like That's when I fell in love with like, the idea of working in crypto and feeling like I belonged. Okay, Pimnet, what's your uh, origin story in crypto? Um, it happened uh, when I was at my prior role at a large bulge bracket bank, um, and I basically started to question the value of money. Um, it was during COVID and it was when, you know, the Fed printed $4 trillion. Every central bank on the planet, you know, printed money like crazy. People got stimulus checks, PPP loans. I was trading futures um, that implied negative interest rates policy in the U.S. I, I've literally traded contracts that were through par. And I, I, I was sitting there and I'm like, this is the most absurd thing I've ever seen. Uh, they're printing money left and right and talking about negative interest rates. Uh, and I was on the desk and it was just like, okay, it's Tuesday. The New York Fed's about to buy all these securities. Like every day there was an operation to buy all these things. And just more and more, I'm like, if we were just printing this stuff like left and right, what, what, what really is its value? Um, so that got me questioning it. Um, and, you know, really sort of into the, the, the Bitcoin thesis and then high level, I mean, I, it, 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 it was just infectious in terms of like when you talk to people that were in, involved in DeFi or, you know, very early into crypto, um, their passion for it was un, unbelievable. I had a lot of friends in the industry um, when I sort of got it into it and it was basically infectious. And it's like, you know, when all of your cool, smart friends start to do it and you're like, oh my God, this is interesting. Let me go on Uniswap and SushiSwap and try this out. It's like, wait, wait, there are positive interest rates here. Wait, I can like yield farm like with 10 plus interest. I was, I, so in my prior role, I was moving around billions of dollars for a basis point or two. I would make trading decisions for one or two basis points. And then I would go on to DeFi and I'd be looking at 10 plus percent yields. And I, I, it just it just drove me insane. I was like, "What is this?" I'm super interested. <laughs> yeah. So that's what got me interested. Really, just seeing money break down. 
domestically and abroad? So for me, um, I first found out about Bitcoin in 2012, um, but I didn't get super interested in it until the Euromaidan protests in the Ukraine in the 20, in 2013. I, I was involved at the time I was um, a forensic investigator in my prior job. And so I was always, and I've always been a little bit of a hacker type. And I, I mean, somebody who breaks things on computers, not like a network penetration guru or anything like that. But, um, so I was on, um, I was in IRC chats and I was using Tor back then. I was running a Tor relay on my Comcast home, home internet, uh, connection. And I was talking to some people and, and somebody shared a photo of, um, these Euromaidan protesters who were protesting the Russia backed government in Kiev. Um, holding up a sign saying, send us Bitcoin, help fund our revolution. And I said, what the hell is Bitcoin? Um, and that really sort of took me down the rabbit hole. I actually know now, by the way, that, and I didn't know then, that it was actually the Human Rights Foundation that was assisting the Euromaidan protesters in accepting Bitcoin. And that was kind of how they first got interested in it. And that's Alex Gladstein, who we had as a guest uh, on this podcast back, I think, in early August. Um, so I, I now know that that was them working on it. But um, I, so I was really like an internet money kind of guy. Like I, I said, you know, we got, I, I was doing encryption. I was doing, um, you know, privacy. And then, you know, I think money was a, a clear thing for me. That was my orange pill, as they say in the Bitcoin community. Awesome question from our listener, Ollie. Thank you so much for the kind words and the question. Um, to the rest of our listeners and Ollie, send us more questions. Again, research at galaxy.com. Uh, feel free to send them an audio clip. And like Ollie, you could be featured on Galaxy Brains. That's all for this week. Uh, thanks again to Saul and Christine and Bimnet, as always. Uh, we'll be back next week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content at galaxy.com slash research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. See you next week.